Let's get into our lesson for this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 14. That's where we're going to begin. Matthew chapter 14. And our lesson this morning is on choosing sides. If you haven't joined us for the last uh, however many lessons we've done in Matthew, let me just do a, a quick summary of the chapters up to now, and then we'll get straight into our class. So... In chapters 1 and 2, we looked at the childhood of Jesus. In chapter 3 and 4, we looked at how his ministry began. In chapter 5 through 7, we have a great example of what Jesus' teaching was like with the Sermon on the Mount. And then chapter 8 and 9, we have a great uh, illustration of who Jesus was as a person, going from, from individual to individual and healing and helping the people that he came across Then we have chapters 10 through 13, and this was what we looked at last week, that Jesus came not to bind people down, not to um, put heavy burdens that they couldn't bear, but rather to alleviate their suffering, to alleviate the, the things that were weighing them down, and to give them the true rest. And God's people had always been looking forward to the true rest. Um, the land of Canaan was a taste of that rest. The Sabbath was a taste of that rest. Um, but we see in the New Testament that Jesus and what he brought was the, the fulfillment of that true rest. And we look forward to the ultimate rest that we have in the life to come. So we're up to Matthew chapter 14 now. And we're looking at chapters 14 through 16 this week in our devotional book. And this lesson, we're going to do kind of a a rushed summary of all of the um, individual components of these chapters. So it's three jam-packed chapters, and there's a lot of material to get through. Any one of the stories in this chapter you could do not just a lesson on, but probably a whole series on. Um, So... This may be a bit rushed, and hopefully you can keep up with the the pace as we're going through, but we're not going to read a whole lot from these verses, because hopefully you'll be reading through that this week. Um, We're just going to summarise what these stories are about and how they fit into this picture that uh, Matthew has. And I'm going to be quick, because as we all know, it's Mother's Day, and so all the kids have... Uh, a big three-course buffet lunch that they're getting ready for their parents. So um, mums, you're getting ready for that. Kids, you've got that lamb roast to put on and the potatoes and the broccoli and cauliflower. So I will try and keep this uh, to schedule and to time. So Matthew chapter 14 is where we'll begin. I want you to just think for a moment before we dive into these stories about the big choices that you've had to make in your life. When you've had one direction that goes that way, another direction that goes this way, and you've had to decide, where am I going to take my life? Maybe it was a job that you um, had to apply for, that you were offered, maybe when you got out of high school or, or out of university, and there was one job that would take you this way, and there was another job that would take you that way. And it was a big decision for you, it was something that was... Um, going to have a lot of consequences. It was going to really change your life. Maybe um, you've had to have a big choice in where you're going to live. Maybe you've had to choose, am I going to live in this city or that city or this state or that state or this country or that country? And that's an enormous decision. That impacts so many parts of your life. Maybe you've had to decide... Maybe it was at school and you had to make a decision as to, actually, I'm going to be friends with those people instead of these people. Um, And that one English class where you made the big step, instead of sitting with these people who you'd been sitting with, you decided, I'm going to sit with 
um, that group instead because I, I want to be friends with them or at lunchtime, whatever it was. Regardless of what those decisions were, I'm sure that you have some. I'm sure that you can reflect on some days in your life where you had to make a big decision. And usually those days are not very fun. <laughs> They're days to be endured rather than to be enjoyed. They're days that um, you're constantly second-guessing yourself, um, you're constantly thinking about the pros and cons of each decision, and you know that if, if you get this decision right, then there's a lot of things to be enjoyed, but you're always worried about what if, what if I'm about to make a decision that I live to regret and I'm going to have to go back on years later or something like that. Okay, now stop thinking about those things um, and let's start thinking about Matthew 14 through 16 because these chapters are all about people who are having that day in their life where they're having to choose what side they belong to. They're having to choose um, where they truly belong. In Matthew 14 through 16, we're going to come across lots of different people who respond to Jesus in different ways. And they're going to have to choose, am I going to take Jesus at his word and accept who he says he is, or am I going to reject Jesus? And through this whole um, these, this series of chapters, we're going to see that there are big consequences to the decisions that these people are going to make. And Matthew is telling us. This is a, not a passive story that you read and then put down later. Matthew is saying that just as all these people made a choice, so you and I also have to make a choice on who we think Jesus is. Um, this isn't just a this isn't Lord of the Rings where you just read it and it's a it's a nice story. But you don't have to choose whether you're pro or anti the orcs or you know whether you're for Frodo or against Frodo. This isn't a movie where you just sit there and you watch the Avengers and uh, you don't have to choose whose side you're on because you have no dog in this fight. You have no participation. Now, Matthew is saying, you have to choose here. Um, This is like Jumanji. Once you roll the dice, you're in the game. You have to play the game. You have to make these choices. Matthew is putting these people forward to show you which side are you going to be on. Who are you going to align with and who are you going to conclude that Jesus truly is? All right, let's get into this. And and we're going to go through the first um, several stories very quickly and then spend a lot more time uh, on chapter 16, that final chapter that we'll look at today. So let's start with um, Matthew 14 and verses 1 through 12. This is the story of John the Baptist being put to death. So this is kind of a cutaway shot that Matthew does. He, he's telling the main story of Jesus in Capernaum. And then he's going to cut away to something that happens down south. So if you remember the places that we're looking at, Capernaum, where Jesus lives and does most of his work, is way up north. And it's several days' journey to get down to Jerusalem, which is the capital, and that's where the temple is, and that's where the Jewish leaders are that Jesus is um, vehemently attacking. So Matthew, he's been dealing almost exclusively with um, Capernaum and Jesus' ministry around there. He hasn't referenced Jerusalem um, since we learned that the the wise men came to Jerusalem back in chapter 2. 
So he's going, he's just, this is the story in Capernaum. And then he just does a, a bit of a cutaway scene to, and by the way, this is what's happening now in Jerusalem, just to build the tension. And we see here that this is the story of the first person who's going to die for the kingdom of heaven. Not the last person who's going to die, but the first. John chose which side he belonged to. John chose that he was going to be a representative and a preacher of the kingdom of heaven. And that set him against the kingdoms of this world. That set him against the ruling king, King Agrippa. When we finish today's lesson, Jesus is going to remind us that choosing sides comes with a cost. And it may come with the cost of laying down your life. So it's, it's serious business. Um, sometimes when we learn about Jesus, um, it leaves us feeling all warm and fuzzy inside. Other times it leaves us shaken up. And these couple of chapters are probably going to leave us more shaken up rather than the warm, fuzzy feeling that we might get in other parts. So this is the first side that's chosen. John the Baptist chooses the kingdom of heaven. The consequence, he's killed for it. We then have um, some more people who are choosing to follow Jesus and choosing to listen to Jesus. And this is in Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. So you see in Matthew 14, and we'll read verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. So Jesus hears that John has died and he tries to have some space. But there are people who are still wanting to follow Jesus and they're still interested in Jesus. And no wonder because, you know, if someone was, was on the outskirts of Toowoomba and he was walking around and performing miracles and healing people's diseases and there was thousands of people following him, I'd probably want to go out too and, and have a bit of a sticky beak and, and see what he was doing and what he was teaching and what he was all about. So there are these people that follow Jesus. There's 5,000 men plus women and children. There's a massive crowd of people and Jesus has compassion on those who are following him, who are sincerely, genuinely wanting to get to know him. And we see here that he miraculously feeds those 5,000 with the fish and with the bread. We're familiar with the, the story there, I'm sure. So these people have chosen to follow Jesus. We then have a, another story of Jesus' closer disciples and their decisions to follow Jesus. We see in uh, verses 22 to verses 36. Um, this is the story of Jesus and Peter walking on water. This is Peter's big moment. We talk about sink or swim. Um, his was sink or walk, and he had to decide whether he was going to stay within the safety of the boat or whether he was going to put his trust in Jesus. And sure, he stumbles, and sure, he, he looks at the waves and he takes his eyes off Jesus, um, but he did get out of the boat. He did give it a go. He tried to choose Jesus. He tried to make a, a deliberate choice to put his trust in Jesus, and I think we should commend him on that. So we've got three stories here of people who are choosing Jesus, people who are choosing Jesus and suffering consequences, people who are following him, and people who are putting their trust in him. The preaching and the works of Jesus are getting really big now. Um, they're kind of getting a bit out of hand. 
And for the first time, Jesus is about to be criticised, not just by local people, but he's going to have a delegation sent to him from Jerusalem. So if you read in uh, chapter 15 and verse 1, chapter 15 and verse 1 says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said... And so we have here the Pharisees in this section, verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. We have the Pharisees coming all the way from Jerusalem. You know, they're travelling multiple days to hunt down Jesus, to track him, to find out what he's about so that they can hopefully trap him in his words uh, or perhaps even get him to stop teaching. So the Pharisees are coming all this distance, multiple days, and they ask him this question. They think that they've got him. And they say in verse 2, um, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Uh, so this is, you know, they've traveled multiple days. They've clearly been thinking of what's the best question that we can ask Jesus when we get there. This is it. You know, we got him on this one. He's breaking these traditions that we've got. And Jesus, he doesn't back down. He says, guilty as charged. I do break the traditions. But he says, you guys are breaking a commandment of God. In verse 3, he says, he answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Verse 4, for God commanded, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. He's not just quoting a random command from you know, the book of Numbers and it's an obscure command that they happen to be, to be violating. He says, this is one of the Ten Commandments. This is one of the critical components of the law and you're breaking that. And you're going to come and accuse me of breaking one of your particular traditions that's not even part of the law and talk about a, a misunderstanding of priorities there. So... He not he doesn't just um, gently deal with the Pharisees. He gives them a strong rebuke. They've travelled all this way to try and tra- trap him in his words. And he tells them, you're violating one of the Ten Commandments through your actions. And then, just in case that wasn't far enough, he then quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. He says in verse 7 through 9, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And that's a pretty explosive thing to say to someone. (laughs) That's not mincing his words by any mean. But in case that wasn't explosive enough, You've got to remember, he's quoting from Isaiah here. And Isaiah 29, in case you haven't read Isaiah 29 recently, is about God criticising the leaders in Jerusalem and saying because of their actions, Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be destroyed. And Jesus points out that chapter. He points out that verse. And they would have known where that verse comes from comes from the chapter that's all about the wicked leaders in Jerusalem and for that reason Jerusalem would be destroyed. Jesus points to them and says, Isaiah was talking about you all along. Isaiah was talking about your wickedness and you violating the commandments of God. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? It's like lighting a match and dropping it into a drum of petrol. (laughs) 
He just explodes the scene, says the reason why Jerusalem is in danger is because of your actions. So guess what he does after he drops that match into the drum of fuel? He does what any sensible person would do. He goes on a holiday. He gets out of there and travels to a faraway region. So we have um, the main region where Jesus did his work was around Capernaum. And up to this point, he's just been around this place. But now we're going to see that he's going up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Um, In verse 21, it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So Jesus leaves his region for the, um, for the first main time to go on a, on a big trip away. You notice it says there he withdrew. Every time Matthew uses the word withdrew, it's after a big confrontation between Jesus or his followers and the, the Pharisees or the, the leaders of the Jews. So we have that used in Matthew 12 and verse 15, Matthew 14 and verse 13. Jesus you know, lights the match, drops it in, and then he withdraws and, and lets that kind of sink in. So Jesus leaves this region. He, he goes to Tyre and Sidon, where there are practically no Jews who are living there. Um, this is a Gentile region. And you remember what Jesus said to his apostles back in chapter 10. He said, look, I'm focused now on reaching the lost sheep of Israel. I'm not focused on the Gentiles. And he has this strange encounter in um, chapter um, 20, uh, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. This is the Canaanite woman who he meets in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And the encounter is, is very odd, and we don't have time to look into um, all of the interaction here and, and what's going on. I'll let you read it this week, and, and you can um, come to your conclusions about what's what's going on here. But Jesus is is showing this lady his main priority is to deal with the lost sheep of Israel, but also with the the religious leaders who were acting so wickedly in Israel. And she, in the midst of all the Jews who were rejecting Jesus, she, a a Canaanite, a non-Jew, a a Gentile woman, um, she decides to put her trust and her faith in Jesus. She has a daughter who's oppressed Um, by some demons and she asks Jesus she puts her trust in him she chooses to identify him as the Messiah as the son of David and she chooses to be faithful to him it says in verse 25 but she came and knelt before him saying Lord help me This is, again, a a section all about people who are choosing sides. And even though many of the Jews chose to oppose Jesus, even um, the Gentiles at this stage are beginning to come to recognise who he is. We have Jesus then returning to uh, Capernaum. Maybe the Pharisees went back to Jerusalem. Maybe it got a bit safer. And so he comes back and he goes around the, the Sea of Galilee He actually uh, returns to not so much the Jewish towns, but more to the Gentile towns around the Sea of Galilee this time. And this time he feeds uh, 4,000 people. And you're thinking, this is, you know, something's wrong with the video today. We've done this already. We've gone through this. And he's already done the feeding of the thousands of people. 
Well, no, this is actually a different account. There are two accounts of Jesus feeding large numbers. And this time it's different. The miracle is virtually the same. Um, There are very few differences in the number of people who are fed or the number of loaves and fish that are used. The main difference is that this time around the crowd is mostly Gentile instead of Jewish. The text doesn't explicitly say that, but when you study through Matthew, he's giving you all sorts of hints as to why this crowd this time is um, Gentile. He talks about the region where they were, and if you trace where it was on the Sea of Galilee, you can see, okay, it was in the Gentile regions that Jesus was. And then um, in this case, he talks about how they praised the um, God of Israel. And Matthew and Jewish writers don't talk about the God of Israel. They just talk about God. So why was he saying the God of Israel? It was because Jesus, this time around, he was feeding 4,000 people who were from a Gentile background. So they were choosing what side they were going to be on. And then in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we have the warning against the Pharisees, where Jesus calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they team up against him to try and trick him and bring him down again. They demand a sign from him, and he responds to them, and then he warns his disciples about how dangerous they were and about how dangerous their teaching was. So we can see a big list of stories there, where the the core theme is, whose side are you going to be on? And it culminates in the the big story of this, I would say perhaps one of the most central stories to the whole book of Matthew. And that's in, um, it happens in Caesarea Philippi. So again, Jesus leaves that region, perhaps to escape the Pharisees again. And he just takes his disciples with them. And this time in chapter 16, Verses 13 to 28. The question is, what side will the disciples choose? Are they going to choose Jesus' side or are they going to leave him? Let's go to verse 13. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Why why do you think they were saying that Jesus was one of these three people, John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah? Well, it makes sense that they would have thought he was Jeremiah, since they were both preaching the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But why Elijah and Jeremiah? Why did they think it was those specific Old Testament characters, not you know, Daniel and Joseph or Adam and Job. Well, there's a good reason why they had concluded that Jesus was very similar and might be a a rebirth of Elijah um, or of Jeremiah. And that's because the messages of Elijah and Jeremiah were very, very similar to the message that Jesus was preaching. Remember Elijah? He was the prophet who stood up against the king and the queen and the rulers of his time. He preached against that wicked Ahab and Jezebel. He called out the corrupt behavior of the leaders of God's people and he even predicted their downfall. Does that sound like Jesus to you? What about Jeremiah? Why did people say that he was like he might have been Jeremiah? Well, it was because... Jesus was preaching a very, very similar message to what Jeremiah was preaching. 
If you watched our lesson last week, you might remember we looked at Jeremiah chapter 5, and verse 1, and then verse 6, or somewhere around there. And in that, Jeremiah is given the task, run to and fro through Jerusalem. See if you can find one righteous person that will save the city from destruction. And there couldn't be found a righteous person, not even among the leaders and the great. And it's because of the wickedness of the people in Jerusalem, and especially the wickedness of the leaders, that Jeremiah predicted the downfall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. What was he weeping over? He was weeping over Jerusalem and the fact that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. The temple was about to be destroyed. And as we're going to read in Matthew, that's exactly the message that Jesus is giving. Because of the wickedness of the rulers of Jerusalem, the city is going to face destruction. So the people were calling, Je- were calling Jesus Jeremiah because they recognised that both of them were speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem. The current leadership in Jerusalem was on a path towards catastrophic failure. And all of a sudden, the kings and the rulers would be deposed, they would be taken off the throne, and the rightful king would come to sit on the throne. And Jesus stands there in the middle of all of this preaching. No wonder they wanted to kill him. Verse 16 in uh, Matthew 16. It says, uh, verse 15 and 16. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Christ is the word Messiah. It's an Old Testament term referring to the coming person who would sit on the throne of David and rule over the kingdom of God. The word Messiah has come up a couple of times in Matthew, but this is the first time that someone calls Jesus the Messiah. And this is the pivotal moment of the book. In verses 17 and 18, it says, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this is one of the more contentious um, couple of verses in the book. Some people have interpreted this over time to think that Jesus was putting some special importance on Peter as if he was the foundation, as if he was the building block of the church. And that's simply not true. There are many good reasons why that interpretation just doesn't make sense in the context. Um, You can look at how it goes completely against what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, when he said, no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which has been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Um, So saying that Peter is the foundation, according to these verses, that would mean that these verses don't make sense. Or you could go and look at the Greek terms and you can look at the difference between the demonstrative pronouns and the personal pronouns. And you can see that Jesus is not making a big statement about about Peter being the foundation of the church. I think it's fairly obvious. You don't need to learn Greek to see what Jesus is saying here. The point that Matthew is getting at is not trying to tell you who Peter is. He's trying to tell you who Jesus is, of course. The whole story is about finding the identity of Jesus. And this is like the centre of the story, the centre of who Jesus was. He's not talking about Peter and and some special privilege that Peter has here. He's 
he's trying to get you to understand who Jesus is and what that means. It says here, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It should be um, the gates of Hades. Um, it's the word Hades there instead of Gehenna, which is hell. Um, and what that means is gates is a reference to the strength of something. So when you talk about the gates of the city, you're talking about the strength of the city. Hades was the, the place where the, the dead go to. So put it together, the gates of Hades um, means the strength of death. So the strength of death shall not prevail over the church. Um, we've been watching a bit of Lego Masters recently and you see people who build a, a massive structure and they're so confident they, they, they put all their... Um, thinking and, and concentration into building the most stable um, Lego structure that they can, and yet it comes crumbling down. Uh, more often than not, these great towers they come falling down. They had, you know, a weakness where they didn't see it. This is a pretty bold claim for Jesus. He's saying, "I'm going to build my church, and even the the strength of death itself won't even conquer over the church." And maybe he's talking about his personal death and resurrection and how his death wouldn't mean that he was a loser but uh, but rather that he would have victory in the resurrection or maybe he's talking about how us christians even when we die um, we will have the resurrection into um, eternal life both of those are, are true so let's summarize what's going on here jesus thought he was going to become king his followers thought that he was going to become king. They all agree that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah must become the king. They just have very different ideas on what that looks like, on what it looks like for Jesus to become king. Peter thinks it looks like you march on down to Jerusalem, you get your swords out, you get your guns out, and you you know, stick it to the Pharisees. You kill the Romans, you kick the Pharisees out of town, you put Jesus on the throne... You conquer and he reigns forever and ever. All the disciples think that's how we make Jesus the king. They're probably expecting him to say, look, boys, pack up your bags, um, get your swords, get your shields, get your daggers, your spears. We're going down to Jerusalem. We're going to launch an attack on it any day now. They're, they're ready to go to Jerusalem to initiate the kingdom of heaven by kicking out those evil rulers and putting Jesus on the throne. So you can imagine how their jaw drops when Jesus says this next sentence. In, in verse, we'll skip to verse 21. From that time, so never before, but from this moment onwards, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And we think, oh, that's a, a nice thing. Jesus predicted what was going to happen. But that's not what's going on here. If, you, if you're the type of person who highlights verses, you have to highlight verse 21. It's perhaps the most critical verse in all of this whole book of Matthew. This is the core. Everything before it is leading up to this moment. Everything afterwards is pointing back to this moment. Everything beforehand has been pointing to the fact that Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is going to be the king. And from this moment onwards, this moment where Peter and the disciples finally recognize that Jesus is the long-awaited king, Jesus reveals 
what that looks like. God does not conquer through weapons and bloodshed. Jesus does not become king through leading a military rebellion. Jesus conquers over evil, death and sin by laying down his life in self-sacrificial love. Not by killing, but by being killed. Not by violence, but by enduring violence. Jesus becomes king when he goes to the cross and dies. And he is enthroned as the king of that great eternal kingdom of God. Not through an act of violence, but through an act of suffering. Well, Peter doesn't buy it. (laughs) He just says that can't be right. In verses 22 and 23, it says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And I can understand why Peter got so caught up in this. I think he's, he really understands finally that Jesus is the Messiah. And then he's so thrown because this is nothing like what he expected. And verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus finishes this section, and we'll finish here, um, by doing a call to action on whose side are you going to be on. Choose what side you belong to. Being on Jesus' side is about surrendering your life in self-sacrificial love. For Jesus, it meant dying on a cross. For you and I, choosing Jesus could mean all sorts of things. It might mean death. It might mean a sacrifice in, in that same way. Or it could just mean laying down our lives in love for one another. And now you know the cost. It's time that you choose. Let's read verses 24 to 28. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Isn't that a great line to finish with? Isn't that a great to-be-continued line? There are some standing here who are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wait until next episode and you'll find out what that looks like. So the main point, Jesus is on a mission to become the king. And Matthew is calling us to choose which side we belong to. Who is going to be the king in our life? So whose side are you on? And if you're not with Jesus, if you're not part of his kingdom, if he's not the king of your life, why is that? Are you sure that you've chosen the right side. Are you sure you don't want to swap sides? From now on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to march to Jerusalem with the intention to confront the evil that's there. And Jesus is going to defeat that evil by letting them kill him. As we heard in our Bible class this morning, Romans 12 and verse 21, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. How is Jesus going to overcome the evil in Jerusalem? Not by starting a religious war and starting a a new rebellion. It was by giving his life for those who hated him. 
And if you're on Jesus' side, you're called to surrender your life in doing good to others too. And maybe you'll die for it, and maybe you won't. Maybe you'll just wake up every day and have to choose to live for others, to love your neighbour as yourself, and to live a life of self-sacrificial love. That's what it means to be on Jesus' side.